Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Several years ago, there were some uh, people in California that erected this sign out on the interstate for all to see. And uh, this sign was put up to demand from President Obama his birth certificate as a way of indicating where he was born. And some of you might remember, this was a big kind of controversy years ago, maybe for some still is. I don't uh, bring this to your attention to give my opinion on this. I bring this to your attention to highlight something that we don't think about perhaps very often, and that is the importance of knowing our place of birth. Place of birth is a significant detail in all of our lives. You uh, need to know your place of birth if you want to apply for a job, if you want to get insurance coverage, if you want to vote, if you want to gain entrance into a university. There are probably many things about your early childhood that you've forgotten, but one thing you know, you know where you were born. We know our place of birth. And there's a reason why our place of birth is so important and why we need to have that information available. It's because our place of birth uniquely distinguishes us from others. Place of birth is an important identifying detail about us. Our place of birth reveals something distinctive about us. It's possible that there are other Bob O'Bannons in the world, but I am the Bob O'Bannon who was born in Muncie, Indiana. And that place of birth detail distinguishes me from others. And as we are here today celebrating Christmas in this worship service, it's appropriate to point out that the same is true for our Savior. The same is true for Jesus Christ. There's something about His birth that reveals something distinctive about Him. There's something about His birth that distinguishes Him and distinguishes the Christian religion from other religions, from other worldviews, from other philosophies, and distinguishes Jesus from other teachers. And so that's what we're going to think about here this morning. Jesus' place of birth, and that causes us to reflect on our own place of birth too. There's a guy named William Barclay who said this, there are two great days in everyone's life. The day you were born and the day you discovered why you were born. And the way for you to discover why you were born, the reason you exist, the reason you have life on this earth, is by knowing why Jesus was born. And my prayer and hope is that you'll discover that if you haven't already this morning. We're going to be reading here from Micah chapter 5. So open your Bibles to the book of Micah. Um, I recommend that you just find Matthew, first of all, if you don't know where Micah is. <clears throat> find Matthew and then start turning left. You'll go through Malachi and Zechariah and Haggai and Zephaniah and Habakkuk and then you will reach Micah. And I'm going to read the first five verses of this chapter, Micah chapter 5. We're just going to focus on verse 2 in particular, but we'll read these first five verses that uh, foretell the place of birth of our Savior Jesus. And uh, this was written about 700 years before Jesus' actual birth, the prophecy of Micah. If you'd please stand now for the reading of God's Word, Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, 
O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Lord, would you please open eyes and soften hearts, deliver your truth to us that we would be transformed and brought close to the Christ child today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Three things we're going to discover here from this um, passage in Micah chapter 5. We're going to think here about what this tells us about Christmas. We're going to learn here that Christmas is about a prophecy, and Christmas is about a place, and Christmas is about a person. All right? So first of all, we're thinking about Christmas being about a prophecy. Now, I've mentioned this is Micah. Micah is a prophet that we might not know a whole lot about. We actually don't know much about his background, um, but we do know that prophets in the Old Testament were individuals called most often to call the people of God to repentance. Uh, They would bring to their memory the requirements and stipulations of the covenant and call them to obedience to God. We might call them covenant enforcers. That's mostly what the prophets were doing, calling God's people back to obedience to Him. But there are times when the prophet, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is able to predict, to prophesy, to foretell something that is true about the future. And that's what's happening here. This is Micah writing, as I said, 700 years before the time of Jesus. Micah was a prophet, a contemporary of uh, kings um, Ahaz and Hezekiah. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, a prophet that most of you are probably more familiar with. That's when Micah wrote. And throughout this book in Micah, he is describing a situation in Judah that is extremely dire, extremely serious, some shocking moral degradation going on in the nation. He talks in this book about idol worship, a witchcraft being practiced by God's people, sin and rebellion, extortion and violence, murder and corruption. These are phrases that Micah uses to describe the situation. Injustice being done to children and to women. Other prophets claiming to speak on behalf of God and uttering lies. Leaders who are said to love evil and hate good. That's the situation. That's the moral climate that Micah describes for us in this book. And so Micah says, because of this, Judah, God's people, judgment is coming. There's going to be a time when Jerusalem is going to be reduced to rubble. There's going to be a time when the people of God are going to be screaming in terror, it says in chapter 4. 
and eventually it will culminate in God's people being exiled to Babylon. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 10. So all these things are leading up to chapter 5, in which we get, in verse 2 in particular, this wonderful burst of hope. The sun kind of breaks through the clouds, and we see these words, this prophecy that Micah gives us. In verse 2, a ruler is coming, he says. A ruler is coming. And in verses 3 through 5, he tells us a little bit about this ruler. He's going to be one who shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord. In verse 4, he's one whose name is going to be great to the ends of the earth. Everybody's going to know about him, verse 4 says. And in verse 5, finally, the peace that God's people are longing for will be theirs because of the coming of this ruler. But in verse 2, what we see is this prophecy, this foretelling that this ruler is going to be born in Bethlehem. A forecast, a prediction, a prophecy. The ruler who is coming is going to be born in Bethlehem. Again, 700 years before. Now, Ashley came up and read from Matthew. She didn't make a mistake. I asked her to change that. I know your bulletin says Luke, but she read from Matthew because in Matthew chapter 2, it says this. I just want to show this to you again. 700 years after Micah wrote, we read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he goes on and he quotes the passage that I just read you. So here's what's happening. Herod, he sees that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and he goes to the religious leaders of the day, and he says, who is this? What, when is this Messiah supposed to be born? What's going on here? You know, he's threatened by this new king coming in, and the religious leaders say, Herod, I just want you to see, this was written about seven centuries ago. The prophet said it was going to happen. And what you are seeing unfolding before your eyes is the fulfillment of prophecy. What God said what's going to happen is happening. Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. The future has been predicted. A prophecy has come true. Friends, do you know how hard it is to predict the future? <laughs> to tell what's going to happen even a few days from now, much less 700 years in the future? I mean, we all know the frustration of looking at a weather forecast and having it wrong half the time. But there are a number of other examples of bad predictions. Here's Western Union International in a memo. The telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. President of Michigan Savings Bank, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. Uh, 20th Century Fox, movie producer. Television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. It'll be gone by June, Variety Magazine in 1955 said, of rock and roll music. Some very bad predictions. It's very hard to tell the future. It's very difficult to tell what's going to happen. And, and you 
are all in the same position. We're all in the same position, aren't we? We're wondering, what does our future hold? What is it going to be like? Am I going to be employed? Am I going to be married? Am I going to be sick? What is in my future? And a lot of us live in a certain amount of fear because we don't know what the future holds. What Christmas tells us, Christmas is about a prophecy. Christmas is about a God who knows the future because He's decreed the future. He's planned the future. The future is safely in His hands. And your future, friends, is safely in His hands. He's not walking about in the dark wondering what's going to happen. He knows what's happening, and that's what this prophecy tells us, this wonderful truth that God would be able to predict this, and it would happen just as He said it would. And this is an important thing to consider, particularly if you're one who's not a Christian, maybe, and you're trying to figure out what you believe. Um, one of the ways in Micah's time <clears throat> that people worked this out, uh, who was a true God and who was a false God, one of the ways that question was answered is by inquiring as to which gods could tell the future. And so Isaiah said this, again, a contemporary of Micah, Here's what Isaiah says in response to the false gods and the idols that the people of God were worshiping at the time. Isaiah here speaking on behalf of God. He says, this is God speaking, set forth your case, speaking to idols, false religions. Come on, bring your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them. Tell us what's going to happen in the future. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. That's one of the ways people would know. You tell me the future, and I'll start thinking that your claim to divinity is true. I want to suggest to you that this is one of the things that distinguishes the God of the Bible, the Christian God, from all others. We have a God who knows the future and has predicted it. And this is what... Isaiah goes on to say, I am God, there is no other. I'm God, there's none like me. I'm not like the other gods that are worshipped in this world. I'm different, and one of the ways I'm different is I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet to come. Friends, this ought to get your attention. If you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out, I don't know, there's so many religions, there's so many different worldviews. Is Allah the true God? Is Buddha the true God? Who do I worship? They all seem to have these different claims. They all seem basically the same. Isn't it true that all roads go to heaven? We're all worshiping basically the same God. Isn't that true? No, that's not true. And one of the ways the God of the Bible is distinguished is that he declares the things not yet done. That ought to get your attention, friends. You ought to think, who is this God who can prophesy and tell the future? This is not just a God, this is the one true God. And he demands your allegiance and demands your worship. Christmas is about a prophecy. But Christmas is also about a place. Okay, that kind of goes without saying. We're talking about Bethlehem here. That's the place. Christmas is also about the little town of Bethlehem, located about five miles southwest of Jerusalem. This is the map kind of showing you where Bethlehem is located in the region. And uh, Bethlehem does <clears throat> exist today. This is a fairly recent picture of the town of Bethlehem. 
Uh, the Church of Nativity was constructed in the 6th century and still exists today, as I understand it, and attracts many visitors. So a lot of people travel to Bethlehem. I haven't been there myself. Maybe some of you have, uh, but that's what it looks like. I'm sure very different than what it looked like um, 2,000 years ago. But if you look back to verse 2, you'll see that what Micah makes note of here when he speaks of Bethlehem, by the way, that Ephrathah, there are actually two towns called Bethlehem in Israel, and so we believe that Ephrathah there is just simply a way of distinguishing Bethlehem that's south of Jerusalem where Jesus was born from another Bethlehem that existed in the northern part uh, of the nation. But notice he says about Bethlehem, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Very interesting, in Joshua chapter 15, where there's a list of all of the towns and cities that belong to Judah. You should go there sometime. There's just an enormous list, countless list, of one city after another that belongs to Judah. Bethlehem's not on that list. That's what Mike is talking about. Bethlehem is so small, so tiny, so insignificant, didn't make the cut in Joshua's list in chapter 15. Something extraordinary here about the place in which Jesus is born. What wouldn't it seem? What wouldn't, I mean, if you were going to do this, if you were going to plan a way for the Christ child to come into the world, would you have chosen Bethlehem? I mean, wouldn't it make better sense if God chose Jerusalem or Rome? Or if this were to happen today, maybe New York City or Dubai or Paris, or Beijing, some world-changing city. I mean, wouldn't that be the place you would expect God to make His grand entrance? But that's not what God does. Here's another distinguishing mark. This is what separates God from other gods. He does things in a way that seems upside down to us. You know, I think that if Christ were to be born into this world today, He might be born in a place like Muncie. <laughs> oh, little town of Muncie. He'd be born in some place that you just would never guess it. Nobody would have guessed Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Again, this is showing us the Christian God is different. The Christian God isn't like other gods. The Christian God is a God who's revealed in weakness, a God who comes to little places and little people. That The Christian God is one who brings greatness out of nothing. He bypasses the centers of worldly power. He takes nobodies and turns them into somebodies. One thing I can tell you, friend, friends, is that if you want to be used by God, there is one thing that God wants you to give to Him. There's one thing that He wants you to offer up into His hands. And it's not your good deeds and all of your efforts and all of your gifts and talents. Most fundamentally, what God wants you to offer Him is your weakness, your smallness, your humility, your expression of total dependence upon Him. Friends, we don't like being made weak, do we? We don't like our weakness to be revealed. It's painful. It's humiliating. But it's in weakness that... God works. The only way He's going to be able to use you is if you allow Him to do it through your weakness. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You guys weren't strong and noteworthy in the world's eyes. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's the way our God does things. That's what makes Him different. He's not like every other God. And this is revealed most profoundly, most fundamentally in the gospel, right? Or in the cross. Philippians 2, Jesus, He takes the form of a servant. It says He made Himself nothing took the form of a servant's servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what God did is He exalted Him to the highest place so that every knee would bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Through the weakness that Jesus took on, He was exalted. And we're seeing that here in this place that is so central to Christmas, a small, tiny, insignificant place. But it's not only the smallness of Bethlehem that is interesting. Um, Bethlehem actually had something of a tragic past. If you look to see where Bethlehem is mentioned and other events that took place in Bethlehem, you'll find actually a lot of sorrow. Judges chapter 19, do you remember? It's one of the most shocking stories in all the Bible. This concubine is abused, murdered, and cut up into pieces, and then sent out over all Israel. It's just astonishing. We find out she was from Bethlehem. Rachel, the very first time we see Bethlehem mentioned in the Bible is Genesis 35, and it's a story of how Rachel died and was buried there. That's the first thing we learn about Bethlehem. It's a place where there was a burial plot. And of course, in the Gospel, as Jesus is born in Bethlehem, we see Herod is filled with wrath and hostility and orders the murder of a number of young children because of something that happened in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, in many respects, is a place of sorrow. It's a place of tragedy. And this is the place where God chooses to bring about the very first Christmas. Doesn't that challenge our stereotypical understandings of what Christmas is about. I mean, Christmas is a joyful time. Christmas is a happy time. But it's not joyful and happy for everybody. And there's this kind of assumption that Christmas is, is only for the perfect people, only for the happy people, only for the people who don't have any problems, only for those living in the Norman Rockwell paintings where everything is in order, everything is in place, there's no worries, there's no fears. And sometimes we think, that's what Christmas is for, but Christmas isn't for me, because that's not my life. But as we look at the place that is central to Christmas, I, I think that assumption has to be turned upside down. C Christmas is actually for those who hate it most. That, that, that's a headline from a, a blog by a guy named Matt Redmond, Christmas is for those who hate it most. I just want to read just a brief excerpt from this that captures the weakness of Christmas. He says, Christmas is for those daughters whose fathers never told them they were beautiful. Christmas is for those who go to wing night alone. Christmas is for those whose lives have been wrecked by cancer and the thought of another Christmas seems like an impossible dream. Christmas is for those who would be nothing but lonely if not for social media. Christmas is for those whose marriages are threatening to flip over the edge. 
Christmas is for prostitutes, adulterers, and porn stars who long for love in every wrong place. Christmas is for those who have squandered the family name and fortune. Christmas is for parents watching their children's marriage fall into disarray. In the irony of all ironies, Christmas is for those who will find it the hardest to enjoy. Maybe you didn't find one of those necessarily applicable to your own life, but fill in the blank with your own sorrow. And if you identify that and you're looking for someone who will understand that and enter into your sorrow, I want you to know that Christmas is for you. Christmas is not for the people who just have it all together. What did Jesus say? I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I came from, for sinners. I came for people who know that they have nothing to offer and they're just looking for mercy and they want someone to enter into their lives and to redeem them and transform them and make them new. That's who Christmas is for. And if you can identify with that, then be encouraged, friends. Christmas is for you. That's what the place of Bethlehem reveals to us. Well, one other thing, Christmas is about a place, but Christmas is also about a person. Christmas is about a person. Well, who is this person? If we look at verse 2 again in Micah chapter 5, we see that this person is a ruler in Israel. And the end of verse 2 says that this ruler is one whose origin is from old, from ancient Days. Now, there's an interpretive difficulty here. There's a question about whether this is referring to um, the eternal nature of the Messiah who is prophesied here in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Micah 5.2. The New American Standard actually translates the very end of verse 2 as days of eternity. His origin is from the days of eternity. If you have an ESV, it says from ancient days. And I think the NIV says something <clears throat> similar to that. Um, I, I think the ESV and NIV are better translations. I don't think this is a reference to the eternal nature of the divine Messiah, although we believe the divine Messiah is indeed eternal, that he has existed forever as the second person of the Trinity. We believe that, but I'm not sure that's what's being taught here in verse 2. I think what Micah is referring to here is the promise that God made to David, because here's one good thing about Bethlehem, is that's where David came from. And in 2 Samuel 7, there's a promise that God makes to David, and he says that the throne of David's kingdom will be established forever. It's called the Davidic covenant. God makes a promise. He says, David, your kingdom's going to last forever. But of course, we look and we know that where's David now? Is he on a throne somewhere? No, he's in the grave. His spear is with Jesus, I think, but his body is in the grave. He's dead. David's kingdom has come to an end. But the promise that God makes to David is that the kingdom of David is going to continue. And Micah is picking this up here in verse 2, and he's saying there's a ruler who's going to come in the line of David, a ruler like David who's going to be better than David and greater than David, and he is coming. And that person, as we're learning here, is Jesus Christ. That's why sometimes in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. And so I think that's what's being 
referred to here. Just going back, ancient of days, going back several centuries to the time when God made this promise in 2 Samuel 7, not necessarily into eternity past. But that's who this person is. This person is a king, a king that's greater and better than David, and he's coming. But there's something else here that's very interesting about Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? The word Bethlehem means house of bread. So the person who is coming, according to Micah, is a king, yes, but he's not just a king who's going to act as a protector or a leader or a sovereign ruler. This is a king who comes and says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me and feeds on me and eats of me will never go hungry. This is a very different kind of king. And what do kings normally do? Kings defeat their enemies. Kings order people to feed them. That's what kings do in this world. This is a king, Jesus, who's coming, and he's saying, I'm going to feed you. I'm the bread of life. Have you ever heard of a king like that? That's the king that is being prophesied here in Matthew, excuse me, Micah 5. Friends, we're all hungry for bread, aren't we? We're all hungry for eternal bread. We're all hungry for something that's going to feed our souls, for something that's going to fill up that vacuum, that space inside of us that we can't fill up. Here's what Blaise Pascal said many years ago. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Everybody is driven, whether it's in your career or your effort to have a perfect family or a successful ministry or getting good grades or having the beautiful boyfriend or girlfriend. In all these cases, what we're trying to do is get our souls fed you remember that cartoon? Remember Roadrunner? Remember the cartoon, The Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote? Remember Wiley e. Coyote always chasing the Roadrunner and can never catch him? You know, he gets right there and you figure this is it, but the Roadrunner eludes his grasp. And every time, Wiley e. Coyote goes right back to the drawing board and tries again, tries something else. Maybe this will work. Always chasing, never catching. Is that you? You're always chasing. You're never catching. Because you're chasing the wrong things. What Jesus says, what we learn about the person that Christmas is about, is that Jesus comes and says, I'm the bread of life. I'll feed you. I'll care for you. Do you want that bread of life? Do you want him? Here's what Jesus says. Just a few Verses after he talks about himself being the bread of life, he says this, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The reason you were born, friends, is so that you would believe that and have relationship with your Creator and your Maker. And you can do that. If you're not a Christian, you can do that by just simply looking to that verse and looking to Jesus 
and believing on Him and trusting in this promise that eternal life will be given to you through faith alone and that one day you'll be raised up when Jesus comes again. And this is all made possible because of this prophecy that came true in the birth of Jesus, because of this place, this little humble place called Bethlehem where this all took place, and because of this person, this Prince of Peace, this King of Kings who came into our world. He lived. He went to a cross. He died there. He shed blood for sinners. He's resurrected from the dead, and He's calling on you this morning to believe that and be saved. If you have questions about this, what it is to be a Christian, or how you should respond or act on the things that we're saying here today, uh, would be delighted to talk with you and to help you through that. Now, one would be excused for thinking that we're going to sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, right now, uh, but we're not um, because we heard it played instrumentally by the Horn Ensemble. Great job, Horn Ensemble. Beautiful uh, choir also, thank you, doing a, a wonderful job. Um, we're also going to sing O Little Town of Bethlehem Wednesday night at a Christmas Eve service, so I want to welcome you all to come back for that. We still are going to uh, observe the Lord's Supper here in a moment. But let me just close by reading the first verse of the song we're about to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says this, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the newborn King, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, Join the triumph of the skies, With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Please stand. <laughs>